Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. So up till now, we've recorded an episode about Psalm 103's biblical context, where we talked about the poetry and the meaning and the theological significance of the poetic images. And in the episode after that, we looked at the historical development of the placement of Psalm 103 at the beginning of Vespers. And now we're going to be looking at the the narrative or maybe the dramatic purpose, if I could put it that way, of having the psalm at the beginning of Vespers. Uh, So one thing to note, which we've already done, is it's at the beginning, and that is always a good place to start. What significance do we get from the poetic images and then being placed at that part of Vespers? What what do we get out of that? I think as we talked about before, one of the important elements to keep in mind here is that this is a kind of scene setting as such. You know, if, if there is to be a narrative or a dramatic action in the liturgical service, this is as it were, setting the scene, putting up the stagecraft, making sure that the backdrops are in place. And that's really how this psalm functions um, in that narrative sense. And you know, as far back as uh, 15th century, it's something that St. Simeon of Thessalonica was talking about when he talked about this psalm at the beginning of Vespers. He says that It's read here, blessing the Lord and recounting his creative work, thanking him for everything, for it is fitting always and especially at the close of the day to give thanks for everything. And it's that sense of the the setting out of, of creation and giving thanks to the one God and creator of all that sets the backdrop for all of the following action and uh, story that we live out in the liturgical service of Vespers. I have a question about lights. Sometimes churches have lights on, sometimes they have lights off, sometimes they light all the lights. Is there a particular time to light lights at the beginning of a Vesper service? That's an interesting question. I mean, we will talk later on about the kind of core um, part of the Vesper service, which is the lamp lighting. And in fact, the very earliest references we have to anything like Vespers is all about the lighting of the evening lamp and so forth. But that, of course, is preserved in that central part of, of Vespers that we'll be talking about later, the, the Lord I Call um, Psalms and the hymn Gladsome Light and, and, and so forth. Um, there isn't actually any particular, um, you know, directive around uh, the the lighting of the church um, at the beginning of Vespers. Of course, Vespers finds itself served in different ways, right? So there's the daily Vespers uh, service, which is a quieter and less solemn, less festive uh, celebration of the service. And of course, there's great Vespers on uh, the eves of feasts and so forth, which has a little bit more solemnity. And Vespers, of course, is also taken up into all-night vigils, where they're in there would be a kind of sense in which uh, the lighting and ceremony, you know, takes on a, a new kind of dimension. So, just to take that last example, the the directives in uh, you know Russian practice around an all night vigil on Saturday evening on the eves of great feasts is that 
the sanctuary or the altar area is uh, lit up at the beginning and uh, the, the doors are opened and the, the sensing uh, begins um, as Psalm 103 is, is sung. And we'll probably be talking a little bit about um, that in these episodes. But it's that sense in which the light kind of emanates from uh, the the altar area with the coming out of the the incense and so forth that just lends a little bit more uh, power and you know strength to to the the beginning and the opening of 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 this service and to the whole ceremony itself the more festive character to it but but indeed in, in kind of daily vespers remember it, it's to be appointed at the setting of the sun um, ideally at the very moment the sun sets is when you begin to sing oh gladsome light so the light is fading that's an important element it is the close of the day I think we need to be careful you know in our era of artificial lighting and everything that we don't um we don't lose the the actual natural um, placement of the service it is an evening service the darkness is coming around hence the significance in the central moment of the service of lighting lamps and so forth so but we do play with that a little bit i'd say on a, on a festive character we will you know light the altar and then the, the, those those lights then are, are dimmed before the the lighting of the the central lights and so forth uh, in the central part of the service i think that that is a central key thing that you pointed out which is we live in a society where it could be daytime 24 hours a day if we wanted it to be even if we're on the equator, uh, we can have daytime with electric lights all the time. You can set up your church to just be completely bright if you want for every service. And I think, I think that you're right that we we start to miss something in the narrative purposes of these psalms and these texts being put in front of us if we're not experiencing the natural cycle of the day. Yeah, precisely that. In fact, you know, we'll have opportunity, I hope, to talk about um, the whole cycle of the Liturgy of the Hours um, being, in a, in a way, the kind of sacrament of light, um, uh, the mystery of light. And so much, especially in Vespers and in Matins or Orthros, is connected with light. Um, the, we call the, the seven prayers that the presbyter will 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 say after the the sensing if there is in the great in the all night vigil or indeed just at the beginning of vespers um, on the solea in front of the holy doors we call those the prayers of light uh, and indeed the theme of light is taken up in them in once we get to matins there's a kind of analogous set of prayers uh, that the priest uh, presbyter will say and those also are entirely connected with light so at vespers it's about the the light drawing in and closing and, and, and the light of Christ that comes. Once we get to the morning service, which is to be celebrated anticipating the dawn. So the dawn occurs, you know, right towards the end of that service. It's about the return of light and so forth. And if you look carefully, you'll find those themes are interwoven, you know, throughout the services. And uh, it's really important that, that light, you know, kind of play an important, light and darkness play an, an important role in, in our celebration of that. Of course, you know, your point about it can be light all the time. And in fact, we don't need to fear dark in the way that people did before, because that was a big thing, you know, in, in earlier cultures that, um, you know, hence the importance of lighting a family hearth light, uh, where you can draw around and be protected in, in the night. The prayers also reflect that reality that with the darkness comes 
you know, night terrors and fears and things that stalk us. And we need to ask God for protection as we gather around and, you know, recognize the light that Christ is in the midst of, of the church and so forth. So the, the light, the dark, and all of the things that they represent are really, really important for us to, to kind of understand as we try to make sense of, of this worship. So one of the ways that I've been experiencing Psalm 103 over the past handful of years is really picking up on the understanding of it, not just as a general hymn for creation, uh, but a very specific um, like creation account of how God interacts with the, the creation. And in my mind, it's been an important aspect of experiencing Vespers to understand that God creates out of nothing and from darkness he brings light and that concept of even going into the darkness uh, of night through vespers we remember that out of this darkness is how god creates so it seems to me that there is the two major things we should be picking up on in this section of vespers is creation as this ongoing act of god's creation from nothingness into being but also of of light of uh, God claiming this as his creation. Does that make sense? Those two themes to be contemplating? Uh, certainly. And, uh, you know, as you say, they're reflected, you know, in the words of the psalm uh, that is chanted or sung. I, I would add to that maybe the, the insistence that, you know, this God that we recognize as creator is the only God, right? Uh, that amidst all of the, the kind of stories of gods across all the nations and so forth, this God, the God who revealed himself to the people of Israel, uh, Yahweh, he is the one and only creator, the one and only power, the one who, who creates, the one who, who t gives life, the one who takes away life, the one who orders, you know, everything, uh, that's set before us. And, and that insistence on the kind of, uh, you know, against any sort of idolatry, as it were, against any kind of, um, other gods and, and so forth. And again, this is one of the themes that gets picked up in those, uh, prayers that are said, uh, today quietly, you know, by the presbyter at the beginning of the service that in, former times were actually done, you know, as part of the sung vesperal service of the cathedral rite, um, you know, associated with Constantinople and Thessalonica and places. And, uh, you know, that theme that, you know, among all the gods, there is only one, you know, and that one God that we know is, 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 a, is greater than all the other gods anyway. Uh, that is one of the kind of opening scene setting principles, as it were, of, of the service. To pick up on that theme of light and light coming into darkness, there is, there's an aspect of prayer that happens at this point in Vespers that I didn't know about that much until I was ordained. And I always knew that the priest would come out and stand in front of the altar and would be saying some prayers and at, while we were singing Psalm 103. So I'm wondering... Uh, now I've been a priest for less than a year, but I've been saying those prayers before Vesper, uh, at, at the beginning of Vespers. And I'm wondering if you could enlighten us a little bit, pun intended, about these prayers of light and how they relate to the psalm and how they relate to the beginning of Vespers. Because these are prayers that sometimes, if you don't know what's being said, you might never hear them in your entire life, even if you go to church every single day of the year. 
Right. So they, they actually belong to a set of what you might call collect prayers. Um, a collect prayer is, is a prayer that kind of does as the name suggests. It collects together the themes of what's happening at a particular point in the service, and it kind of gathers it together and, and sums it up, rather. So uh, to, to explain this fully, we kind of have to understand that the origins of the Vesper service that we have uh, today, indeed, most of the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, has a kind of twofold um, history. And that was that there was the Vespers as it was celebrated often in the, the cathedrals and in the parish churches of the cities and so forth. That's the so-called cathedral or urban city rite. Uh, and then there was the, the Liturgy of the Hours as it was celebrated uh, amongst the, the monasteries and particularly by, by monks who were not able to get um, to a kind of central place to, to celebrate um, in common. So we have two very, very different starting points for, well, in this case, for Vespers. And eventually they kind of merge together. But if we focus for a little bit on the, the sung cathedral city rite um, that that existed uh, in Constantinople up until the, the sack of Constantinople in the early 13th century by the Latins. And the last place it exists is um, Thessalonica in the 15th century. You know, I referred earlier to St. Simeon of, of Thessalonica, and he talks about that. It's the so-called asthmatic or sung cathedral rite. And the way Vespers looked in that service is it was entirely sung. Uh, and so you wouldn't have full psalmody. Uh, you would you would have excerpts and antiphons that were sung, you know, antiphonally by by choirs. The only thing that was not sung, uh, it was just chanted, obviously, are the the litanies and then the the presbyter or priest prayers. And it was a very uh, it was a service that was accompanied by a lot of ritual, a lot of movement, uh, processions. And so you would move from place to place within the church, and Throughout that service, you would have kind of two or three psalms that would be sung, again, antiphonally with, with refrains and with, with uh, kind of expansions and interpolated um, verses and so forth. And then you would have a litany and then a collect or collecting kind of prayer. And that's where these prayers of light, so-called, come from, that today are just jammed together in the pre-service book and are appointed for being said during this opening psalm uh, of Psalm 103. Um, what's really interesting um, is that, uh, you know, not only do they kind of belong more properly to the various parts of the service, they do kind of evolve a little bit uh, with that theme of light and, and, and darkness and, and so forth. But uh, what's interesting is that the themes that they evoke actually reflect you know, specifically the Psalms that were part of the sung office, which did not include Psalm 103. Um, certainly not, in, not until, you know, much, much later, because Psalm 103 came out of the monastic, uh, tradition. Um, and it's only later that this kind of got, got thrown together. So the, the first opening Psalm in the sung office, uh, is Psalm 85, right? Uh, which is the psalm that begins, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Uh, but that song, that psalm goes on to evoke some of the same themes we've been focusing on so far that are found in Psalm 103. So for example, I'll give you a couple of uh, uh, verses from, from that psalm, which was the opening psalm of the sung office of Vespers. 
perduring in, in Thessalonica as late as the 15th century. But listen, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God, right? So th this idea of God as creator, as more powerful than all the other gods, and indeed, you know, when it comes right down to it, he is the only God. Well, let's now turn to the first of those seven prayers of light that the presbyter is saying quietly during Psalm 103. It says things like, you are great and do wonders. You alone are God. And among all the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, mighty in mercy, gracious in strength to aid and to comfort and save all those who put their trust in your holy name. These are lifted almost verbatim from Psalm 85, but they're not absent from Psalm 103, but it helps us to kind of focus in on, you know, why Psalm 103 would be picked up and, and placed, you know, at the beginning of the service here. Not so much as a, you know, a sense that, you know, it's a psalm of creation, therefore it belongs at the beginning, right? It's more that for the same reason the hymn of creation is put at the beginning of the scripture, and that is to assert the oneness and the truth of the God of Israel as the one true God and the one who is in control, the one who orders all things. It's not so much that we're going to be kind of elaborating a kind of historical thing, starting, you know, with point A, which is creation, and then we're going to be going through a kind of salvation history account. That's not the point at all. It's that the scene setting is that we are in the presence of the God of all, the one true God who, who is the God that, uh, uh, you know, there, there's none like him, nor are there any works like his, as it says, you know, and then ultimately all nations will come and bow down before him and glorify his name. That's the scene setting that's important here. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. That is not the way that I've been thinking about Vespers, that I definitely have this impression of Psalm 103 being the the, the setting the scene in the context of a direct, almost historical narrative, and you would then challenge that. I would. Uh, you know, the, that account and commentary exists, but the first place it ever appears is in the 19th century in in certain Russian uh, commentators. And so let's maybe elaborate a little bit about how they saw that. So they saw creation kind of showing up here at the beginning of of, of the service. Therefore okay, what happens next, right? Uh, well, it, you know, things didn't go too well, you know, in the next couple of chapters of, of Genesis and Adam and Eve get cast out of paradise, right? And so all of a sudden, some of the, the ritual action begins to take on this kind of symbolic weight where, okay, 
we're thinking particularly here of the all-night vigil, where the, the doors of the iconostasis are open for that sensing. And and so here's the interpretation given. You know, the deacon comes out uh, with the candle and the priest with the censer. And the, 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 the smoke of the censer is the spirit covering over all creation. And that light that comes forth, the creation of light, the creation of the world, the whole world takes place in that moment. But once the sensing is done, then the doors are shut. Right, and so that's the casting out of of Adam and Eve from paradise. And in one of the interpretations, when the presbyter then comes round and stands on the Saleya in front of the shut doors, that's Adam lamenting being cast out of paradise um, and so forth. And then, and then the, the service will evolve from there. The the later psalms around, you know, Lord, I I call, Lord, I have cried, are going to be our our, our plea for redemption, and then gladsome light being interpreted as the coming and in the, with the entrance and so forth being interpreted as the incarnation and Christ coming into the world to save and so forth. I'm not suggesting these are wrong or, you know, distorting, you know, commentary or, or interpretation. However, they do significantly change the original kind of um, intent of Vespers, which is to be built around the lamp lighting and and the the idea of Christ as the light, and ultimately the idea that you know throughout the entire service we are already standing in a redeemed state, right? And so the the scene setting of the opening psalm isn't so much to say we're going to show you creation only to take it away, uh, you know, through the process of, of a fall and then a need for redemption. The entire service is, you know filled with salvation already, the reality of salvation and the idea of God as an ongoing creator, the, uh, the one who sustains us, who, who, who provides uh, life and, and takes away uh, you know, our, our life only to recreate us. Um, and the, so the salvation is, is present throughout the service. It would be you know, difficult to push too far uh, a notion of just kind of trying to portray salvation history as a kind of uh, narrative through, throughout the service. The, the, so every aspect of the service already reflects that Christ is the light and that Christ has come and redeemed us um, and, and so forth. And, and that's the sense that, you know, prior to the 19th century, you know, any commentary on the creation at the beginning of Vespers is that it is God as the merciful, gracious, creative God, the only God among all gods who has already ordered the world and, and saved us within it and is creating us so that we ultimately we be, will, will achieve our, our purpose uh, in his kingdom. So I have two questions that come out of that. Uh, one is, if I'm hearing you correctly, if I'm standing in church, you know, it's a Saturday night. I'm at Vespers, they start singing or reading Psalm 103. It would be better to understand the poetic images about creation as testifying to a redeemed creation already, as opposed to understanding that it's showing me a fall in creation and then trying to narratively work towards a redemption. Yeah, or even worse than that, second thing is sort of setting up um you know, a story that has to somehow have a, a later revealed uh, climax to it. In other words, you know, we're going to show you the glory of creation only to take it away. 
only to bring it back through through redemption and new creation, which is how the those kind of Russian commentators you know depict it. Right? Yes, creation is beautiful, and the Lord stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and and so forth. Um, but you know the way they emphasize subsequent action um, is that you know it represents the kind of now you have to experience the fall in order to. Yeah, and and that somehow that that's narratively you know embodied in the service. I think it's difficult to see that, particularly when you know uh, in the Saturday evening service of Vespers, which is our principal experience of Vespers. Let's you know, we talked about that before. I mean, Vespers is appointed every day, but most of us are only able in in parish practice and ordinary Orthodox experience to to experience that on, on Saturday evenings and the uh, the the psalm which is given in the Cathisma. Uh, at Vespers is blessed as the man. We'll talk about that, you know, in due course. But you know, that has an awkward place in the schema of you know creation, fall, waiting for redemption. You know, how do you even make sense of that? Whereas throughout the any of the interpreters before the nineteenth century were all about you know Christ's saving, you know, creative and saving presence being throughout. You know, we're not we're not trying to take people through a kind of uh, a story of of creation, fall, and redemption as such. Now, to see that is not, as I say, a wrong thing to see, but it is a late interpretation. And it once we get to talking about things like the lamplighting and the significance of that as the core of what this service is, it becomes hard to reconcile with that with that kind of scheme. Uh, if you have that as your principal interpretive lens for the service, the other thing I think that would be worth talking about is this concept of, for lack of a better way of putting it, theologizing already existing practice. I think there's a tendency to want to theologically explain every small detail of the liturgy. And I think that it's it's a trap that we need to be aware of, especially in this aspect of study, the narrative trajectory, right? Because looking at the service through this lens, we might be tempted to ascribe meaning that might not be the actual reason why it came in the first place. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this tension between, uh, to a certain degree, it seems okay to ascribe meaning that may not have been the original intent. That seems to be a natural thing to do. But at the same time, if you take it too far, that could be a problem as well. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I get what you're saying. I mean, one of the things that Anybody who studies liturgy and people's experience of liturgy, what you might call the phenomenology of liturgy, is that there is never just one meaning, right? Um, and even if there was one meaning, who's to say that you know the liturgical scholar or expert or theologian has any input into what that one meaning uh, may actually be? If you asked people what their experience was and you know how they interpreted things, they may give you a rather different answer from what the original framer, you know, uh, framers of the service, you know, might have intended. So, I mean, that's okay. I mean, let's just admit at the beginning that uh, these things are kind of, uh, you know, to give it a academic term, polyvalent, right? They have multiple uh, meanings and directions, you know, to them. And I, and I would never, you know, tell anybody that their, their interpretation, um, you know, as late in the day as it might be, or as far-fetched as it may be, is a bad one. I think the point is, these services are opportunities for us to grow uh, in the kingdom, to grow closer to, to God, to develop spiritually, to, 
you know, establish and strengthen our communion with one another and with the saints. As long as we're doing that, you know, there isn't really a right or, or wrong answer as such. I think one of the things that you know, is often confusing to people is that we don't know necessarily in a lot of cases why things happened the way they did. We can just look at a kind of very complex history of manuscripts and commentaries on on the services. And, you know, as we said, we, we can see where Vespers came from, these two rather different traditions that were really incompatible. And at a certain point where, you know, these two traditions were brought together, um, happily, unhappily, you know, depending on, on your point of view, but certainly we can still detect aspects of both sung city, cathedral, what's called the asthmatic practice, and also the monastic uh, desert practice. Those are still both evident in our services today. Um, but as for, you know, why, you know, what we had at the beginning of Vespers in the Sung Service, Psalm 85, which a lot of its themes are still in evidence, as I say, in those prayers of light, but also just in the whole purpose and, and uh, outline of, of, of Vespers. Uh, when that gets replaced by Psalm 103, you know, does that do damage to those themes, or is it simply that Psalm 103 reflects in a kind of broader creation story way those same themes because they are there, right? And so, uh, you know, what you then do with that, and was that an accidental, you know, change, or was that just simply this process of bringing these two traditions together? We can't answer that. We have no. You know, there's no email exchanges uh, available to us, uh, you know, from the authors and architects of, of these services. And sometimes, you know, we, we compare things that are centuries apart, you know, because that's all we have. So at the end of the day, you know, we can only work with what we have. And uh, you know, it's, it, there is always going to be a tendency to try to find meaning in, in, in things and, and how things came to be the way they were, or why we, we celebrate the services in a, in a certain way. Often the meaning can be quite prosaic or quite mundane. And, you know, the, the later theologizing is, is an attempt to kind of give it, uh, you know, some more weight or value, which is fine. You know, I, I, I have no objection to that. But let's not, you know, lose sight in that process of an opportunity to kind of still focus on on some of what are the core themes that we're meant to be, you know, kind of looking at. So as I say, if, if the interpretations are, you know, even the fanciful ones, if they're in keeping with uh, something which brings people closer to God, there's absolutely no problem. But we should be mindful at the same time that there are dominant themes have been from the beginning that you know, regardless of which songs and psalms are used or in which prayers are used, those were the overriding, you know, things. So if we miss, if, if all of our interpretations, you know, come to the fore and we miss the fundamental theme of light and dark through Vespers into Matins, through that whole cycle of the day and night, uh, then perhaps we have missed something that that's rather important and we should go back and, and maybe try to work a little bit harder on it. But you know, I, I have no objection to later theologizing and giving interpretation and meanings to things that maybe didn't come with those built-in meanings. So when you experience a text, you can experience it in different ways at different times. And the context in which you experience that piece of media or that text can really help define its meaning to you. So what would you hope a person would get out of or experience 
from Psalm 103, specifically given its context at the beginning of Espers? Yeah, so clearly the, the point of being at the beginning of a service is in that moment of, of coming together, of, of being uh, brought into an environment that is worshipful, prayerful, and, and brought into an environment together with you know, fellow Christians, fellow faithful. And we've arrived in that moment, in that environment, in that place, from all kinds of different places, right? With all kinds of things on our minds, with all kinds of, of stories that, that we've lived, uh, of all kinds of thoughts, emotions, and, and so forth. And so one of the important things that, that happens at the beginning of any service um, is, you know, what we have called this sort of scene setting. Uh, what is the, the foundation or the backdrop to everything that's about to unfold in front of you? And that has to be this insistence, you know, on, on the power and majesty of the transcendent God of the universe, who nevertheless is so intimately involved in his creation that he fills it with his own love and grace and care. And, you know, that, that's, it's like the, the, the box that we're going to, you know, do all of the action within. And if you think of the kind of stage that's, that's being set, you know, we will not go outside of, of those boundaries of understanding that there is one God, there is no other God like him. And indeed, you know, he has always been faithful, always been gracious, always tending towards ordering creation, making things, you know, righteous, making things um, work for all of, of, of his loved uh, creatures. And, you know, regardless of what we bring with us, regardless of our experience that day, because remember, this is the end, we're drawing near to the, the, the close of the day, we brought all of that experience with us. That's what we need to be reminded of. That's where we need to be reoriented. And anything else that we will receive within the service, whether it's you know, the, the, the regular pattern of prayers and hymns and psalms that, that make up Vespers, or whether it's all of the special hymns that are brought in because that day is the eve of, of whatever is being celebrated the next day, the saint, the feast, Sunday, um, all of these, these themes that are, are going to be brought in, into play, they all work within the frame that's set up at the beginning. Nothing will trespass that frame. Nothing will go outside of, of those bounds. And that's what I have in mind when, when I speak about the kind of scene setting of all of this. Not that it sort of sets up one point in a narrative history or development, as we said, you know, that, that, that would be to reduce, you know, what's happening here into like just a, an episode, right? It's not an episode. It's the whole picture that everything else is going to be uh, outlined within. So if we're going to go on and talk about light and dark and about Christ, the light of the world, and if we're going to sing hymns to his resurrection or to his saints or to whatever, that's all framed by us blessing the Lord for being very great, for being clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light with, as with a garment, and who orders the world and who, who waters the world and who provides for his world and is creating on an ongoing basis, not as one moment in time, 
that we're going to depart from narratively, but as the ongoing reality of the entire universe. God creates and loves and brings to fruition. And that's, I think, why this makes such a marvelous beginning, you know, to, to Vespers. Nothing against, you know, Psalm 85, which I evoked as the, you know, the, the, the psalm which um, the sung Vespers office, you know, began, which has so many of the same themes in it, but I mean, doing it in that, uh, with all the themes of creation being so much in the forefront, I think is a beautiful way of doing that scene setting. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.